Mark, I want to thank you so much for being on the Silver Lining podcast with me today. It's an honor and a joy to be speaking with you, a thought leader in heart-led leadership, uh, an award-winning novelist, and uh, it is really, really a treat. So um, for the audience, please welcome Mark Crowley, and we're going to get started. Well, thank you, Claude. I've really been looking forward to this, and it's an honor for me to be invited. It really meant a lot to me when you invited me, so thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. I really do. Uh, you're my first one. So oh, I'm really honored. That's I, great. You know, uh, for uh, two heart-led leaders to, to hearts right here. Heart to heart. Excellent. Heart to heart. Mm -hmm. um, I, I've done enough research on you and know what your day-to-day, -day, what you're about, what your essence is about. We'll get into that in a sec, but I'd love to hear a little bit of your origin story how you came to be, how you came to be a thought leader. Why do you care about art? Why is emotional currency important to you? You know, who, who was Mark as a five-year-old and, and here we have you now. So I'd love to just hear a little bit of who you are and how you got to be here. So it's a big story, Claude, and it's, it's actually like the whole evolution of my life. So it's not like, you know, I graduated from college and, uh, you know, I, I interviewed somebody recently and he says, you know, this has been it. You know, I graduated from law school and I didn't like it. And I realized my job is just to do this for the rest of my life. And I wasn't that guy. Um, I just was, you know, I had no idea. But what I will say is that it started, so at five years old, we'll start there since that's where you framed it. I was a happy kid growing up in Long Island. Um, and by the time I was a nine-year-old kid, I was a very unhappy kid. My mom had just died of cancer. No one told me she was going to die. Uh, it came as a complete shock. And then my father, who was actually... A, really very successful guy, like a senior executive, one of the top people at General Electric. He was as great as he was in business. He was as flawed as a human being and as a parent. And he, you know, I mean, I, you know, told people this, but I think that, you know, that it was almost his purpose to destroy my self-esteem, to destroy my spirit, cripple me for life. And so he told me that I would never amount to anything, that I would lack, and he did this with screaming so that it just pierced you. And so, of course, um, it was harmful. And... I always believed that, you know, that if I could just sort of steer clear of him and I actually had a neighbor that saw something in me, insulated me and welcomed me into our home and gave me this vision that I could be somebody very different, truly saved my life. And so when I graduated from high school, I thought my father was at least going to pay for me to go to college. It's sort of this weird thing. You're never going to amount to anything, but if you do, I'm going to send you to college, right? So I don't even know how to explain that duality, but what I will say is that he had the money and he was a very wealthy person by the time I graduated from high school. And instead, he kicked me out of the house like two days after graduation with no word, like no, you know, preparing, no, let's get in the car and find some clean, safe place for you. Here's money for rent. Here's, you know, nothing. And so it was, it was over. The relationship was over. I never went back for a birthday, never went back for Christmas, Thanksgiving, nothing. And so I equated graduating from college as sort of the, the um, 
the equivalent of I wasn't going to be the person that he told me that I was going to be. So it was binary. So if I didn't graduate from college, Claude, even as handicapped as I was, because I had no job, I had no way to make a living, I had no uh, you know skill set to truly be independent as an 18-year-old and go to college and kind of live your life. I could see that this was going to be a real problem. And so ultimately what happened was is that I realized no matter what, if I, I have to graduate from college because if I don't, he will have been right. And that will have destroyed me. Literally, literally was my conscious or unconscious thought. So I got through college. I should have been kicked out my freshman year. I never went, I didn't do the work, but I had professors that somehow saw something in me and you know, sort of carried me along. I probably did a little bit better than I'm giving, giving you a sense of, but not that much. But I kind of, over time, kind of figured it out. I figured out a way to make a living, at least survive, and to just create one step after another kind of momentum. And it took me longer. I think I graduated in like five and a half years. And that plays into the story, by the way. And so what ended up happening was, is that I ended up going to a major university, um, you know, top public school in the United States, ended up doing very, very well at the end. But at graduation, and I started looking around literally on that day and thinking, man, like, how much better off could I have been if I had had somebody who I presumed everybody else had, somebody who cared about them, someone who nurtured them, created some safety for them, encouraged them, praised them when they were actually successful, or, you know, a great way to get through your first year, or way to do a good paper and get an A, whatever that was, I didn't have that. I had to be self-regulating and self-fulfilling, and when you're taught that you're a piece of shit, you know, you're not very good at doing that. You know, you diminish most of those things. So the long and short of it is I graduate, I got that accomplished, I get into managing people, and I did something that I still don't understand how I did it or why I did it. Um, but I made a pivot unconsciously and so unconsciously that it didn't become aware. I wasn't aware of it until I was like 42 years old. I decided that everything that I always wanted and believed would have made me infinitely more successful. I'm going to give that to the people who manage, who I'm managing and leading. And let's just see what happens. And I didn't articulate it and I couldn't articulate it, but every team, I kept getting these promotions. I kept getting these like jobs, like, you know, like, do you realize who you're giving these to? Like, I'm not ready for this. And they just kept giving me more and more. And so, you know, I started to realize, like, I know how to lead. I never looked under the hood to see what was driving it. I just figured this is what everybody does. And so literally somebody who had worked for me now 20 years said to me one day, you realize you manage people very differently, don't you? And I sort of like, you know, late in the game to be figuring this out, right? And I said, well, what do you mean? And so she started giving me examples of what I did compared to everybody else that I was working for. And I'm working in a, one of the largest financial institutions in the United States. And there were plenty of people to compare me to. And it wasn't obvious, you know, to me, but it was blatantly obvious when she started laying out what I was doing, that it was completely different than everyone else. And so I started to explore it. And then I thought, well, I'm going to refine this because this is really working and it's really different. So no intention of being the thought leader you, you called me. I just wanted to become a better manager and a better leader. And so 
So now I've got these national level positions and I'm running this very big business and I was named leader of the year. And so I'm thinking all this work really paid off. You know, I've learned to master these skills and then the bank that I was working for failed and it was sold and I was retained. But it was so, I, you can relate to this. You personally can relate to this. I was so repelled by how they managed people and the whole culture of the organization that I just knew I couldn't stay. So after six months, I decided I'm going to go just go do something else. And I just had this feeling that maybe this is the time to just write a book that would articulate the practices, the things that I knew to do differently. So it's been 10 months doing this. I've got my neat little piles I'm all ready to write. I'm having a conversation with this guy I used to work with. And he says, you know you have to explain why this works, right? You just can't lay out the practices. And I said, why not? And he goes, oh, because people are going to think you needed a really shitty childhood in order to lead this way. And God, I hadn't given it a moment of thought. And I was like, I did take it for granted that people would listen to me. And he goes, people don't know who the hell you are. You know, like you've never written a book before. He, and he wasn't like, you can't do this or you're not that person. He was just giving me very good guidance. So he goes, you better figure out what it was that you were doing to people and then explain that and why it works so that it's transferable. So I, I took it like, you know, like the angels coming to me and giving me this insight. You're like, that's how I respected it. I was so grateful for it. And so then I started thinking, okay, well, what was it? So it took me a little while. One day, this was sitting exactly where I am, looking right out the window. I went, oh my God, I was affecting the hearts of people. And it was this, I don't know, it was like putting your foot on the accelerator and the brake at the exact same time. You know, I was so excited that I had figured out what this was and actually kind of inspired by it. It was like, I was affecting the hearts of people and that's why people responded so deeply and profoundly for me and, you know, scaled mountains for me repeatedly. And then at the end of the day, I went in, I told my wife, I wasted a year of my life because no one is ready to be led from the heart to use any language like that at all. And so I was really depressed. And she said, not instantly, but like a day later, she said, don't you already know this works? Like, don't you already have this experience? And I was like, oh yeah, like I do. Yeah, thank you for that, you know? And so I was like, so she goes, can't you just then go find some evidence to validate what you already know to be true? So I was like, okay, dust yourself off, get your ass back into work and figure out how this is all gonna go now, right? So now I'm re-encouraged. So I start writing all these cardiologists. I had this insight. Cardio cardiology, these are the people that study the heart, they're gonna know. So I reached out to them, none of them were going to respond to me. They, none, none of them did. I wrote these beautiful letters. Please, could I come in and interview you? I had this idea about a book, nothing. So I had this life insurance policy that expired when I left the organization. The company, my level, they paid for like a big, big insurance policy and it evaporated the minute I left. So I needed to go replace it. So they came to my house, they ran all the tests. My brother-in-law owns the insurance company, calls me up and he goes, I'm not bullshitting you, but you have a serious heart problem. So you see the heart just keeps coming back into my life, right? And I go, I, I like run the New York City Marathon a couple times and I'm like, I don't have a heart problem. He goes, they're saying it's so bad you gotta get to the hospital like in the next 24 hours. What? So I go to the hospital 
and the doctor comes out and I tell him the story and he goes, I got an EKG machine right here. Let's just run another one. So he runs another one and he goes, eh, they just misread it. You're in great shape. Don't worry about it. And so I go, thank God. So off I go. And he goes, no, I'm your new doctor. Tell me about what you're doing. And I said, oh, I said, do you know any cardiologist that might talk to me? Because this is what I'm doing. I'm writing a book. And he goes, well, that's funny. I just yesterday learned about this woman who just wrote this book. It's called The Heart Speaks. And she might want to talk to you. So he introduced me to her. I go to her, Dr. Mimi Ganeri, graduated top of her class at NYU Medical School. I walk into her office and Claude, she doesn't even get up. She just looks at me and she says, Mr. Crowley, you have figured out something we're just figuring out in medical science. I had tears, still like hugely impactful moment in my life because I didn't even know what she was gonna say. I just knew she was gonna say, you were right, You're, you got it right, you figured it out. And what she said was, we're just figuring out that the heart isn't just a pump, that it's much more, that it has this huge impact on our choices and our decisions. And she said, I went to medical school and they taught me that when you're working on it, like don't get caught up in a cadaver, like that's the spirit of somebody or their humanity. I'm sorry, I got emotional there. Just relive it, you know? And it just, it was like this just amazing experience where she said, you know, I was taught, just treat it like a carburetor. She goes, but my clients would come in and they would have all these serious heart issues. And then I would start to talk to them and they had bad marriages. They were alcoholics. They had financial problems, huge stresses in their life. And she goes, if the heart is responding to those life experiences, it can't be a carburetor. And so the long and short of it, and I appreciate your indulging me in this, is that I see like from, from nine o'clock, nine years old on, was just this succession of experiences that made me completely certain that the way we're leading people is failing, the way we need to lead is completely the opposite of the way we've traditionally led. And ironically, what we've always believed would be the worst thing you could do, caring about people, supporting people, you know, nurturing people. These are all things that we think are the weakest thing, which is why this language of heart is such a trigger for people. They hear it and they go, he doesn't get business. He's a religious guy, a spiritualist, or a nut job, you know? <laughs> All of that. I know. So that's the story. And I appreciate your letting me tell it because it's it's not a quick one. Mark, thank you. I'm I'm blown away, emotional, and thank you for just your vulnerability and sharing that. What was so evident to me throughout the entire story is resilience. And when I think about the heart the actual organ called the heart, I think about how resilient this muscle is. It's our strongest muscle. Without it, we die. It beats, it breaks, it tears, it mends. And I think about your spirit at nine years old, at nine years old, being told you will never amount to anything. And you leaning in on the only thing that made sense to you which was doing something different than what your father had done to you. Like it was, it's actually very common sense. You just, exactly as you said, you got out of school, you started managing people, and you just said, I'm going to do this the opposite way my dad t treated me. And here you are. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't mean to simplify it, but 
but it is very the, the equation was is easy one plus one equals three in that case and i just want to i want to thank you for just sharing that story and it really just um it just makes me think of how right you are how you are in the right place to be doing this work and all of the you know the years that i've been watching you on twitter and and you know kind of eating up what you say you know it makes it gives me a lot of you know in yiddish they say nachis that gives me a lot of just good feelings to know that because i know i'm on the right path too i know leading with heart is the only way but here you've been putting it into practice for longer than I've been doing it, if you will, you know, in a, in a management capacity at large companies, you wrote a book. And I just think what you're all about is so right. And that's why I really wanted to meet you and get to know a little bit more of how you came to be this person, like how you came to be focused on leading with heart, because let's be honest, while I think it is exactly what we need to do, it is definitely more, let's just say, feminine, if you will. And right. I'm quoting right. this because mm -hmm. we know what we're talking about. And it's not, right? It's not. But here I am speaking to a gentleman who is all about the heart, leading with heart, heart-led heart leadership. And I just want to validate everything that you're about and, and, uh, that's what I want to I, say. I really appreciate that, Claude. You know, it's interesting because um, if you were to go up to people who used to work for me and say, hey, you know, tell me about Mark Crowley. Like, you know, what's one word you'd use to describe him? I'm willing to bet. I've never done it, um, but I'm willing to bet that, you know, you, you would think the obvious word is, oh, he's hard. You know, he's all hard, right? But I think what they would say is that he's like the most demanding person that I've ever worked for. And so, you know, you mentioned the feminine aspect, right? Which is the caring, the nurturing, the supportive. We, we have both of them in us, right? We, we're not, you know, we're not supposed to be one dimensional. And so I, I really think that there's, that, that we, we are, in harmony with ourselves when we allow both of them to exist at the same time. So what I found, you know, in looking back and in writing the book and since then, you know, writing many articles and just really diving deeply into this is that by caring about people, creating a safe place where people felt like they could come talk to me and tell me what was on their mind and not like, you know, BS me as the boss because I'm going to get in trouble or whatever. Um, that by having this relationship where they knew that I had their back, mm -hmm. that was the catalyst that allowed me to say, I need you to do more. I need you to achieve more. So by working in financial services, which somebody said is probably like the most doggy dog environment, right? It's all about sales. If you don't cut it, you don't stay. You're on, you know, one quarter and you're out, kind of that kind of mentality. The, the only way to offset that is to create an environment where people feel like the work is meaningful, the boss loves me, um, I'm growing and developing, and you know, I'm contributing to something that's worthwhile, right? And so when you have that, um, 
we had one at one point I had was managing this is earlier in my career like 30 bank you know the bank branches where you go get your your checking accounts and loans and stuff so I had 30 of them in San Diego and um, we had this basically the bank came to us I won't bore you with the details except to say the bank asked each manager to achieve $10,000 in net income per month. You don't have to understand the math. It wasn't real money, but that was how they calculated it. And it really boiled down to driving sales. If you hit a certain level of sales performance, you're going to hit that number. And they were getting a, they were getting paid off of it, so they had an incentive, right? So I took my team away on a retreat, and I said, this is like the most talented, the most supported team out there. We know more than everyone. I trained them intensely, really coached them, invested in them, and they were fantastic people and I hired really well. So I, had, I knew like I had the team. So I said, the bank has asked us to do 10,000. What do we want to shoot our sights on? And so I'm getting 10,001, 10,002. I go, yeah, thanks. That's not where we're going here, you know? So they wouldn't give me a reasonable number. So I go, okay, I'm just going to throw one out, 14,000. And there was like this massive gasp. And they said, you're going to do, four, you're asking us to do 40% more than a bank has 4,000 branches is asking all the rest of them to do? And I go, yes. And I said, because if, we're going to be good. I mean, let's be great. Like, let's really do great work. This is what it's all about. You know, like, let's be great. And you're going to get more money. You're going to get rewarded off of this. So you make more if you hit this. You know what our first net income was the first month? 21000 And the company's average was 6700 No. Seriously, they didn't come close to the 10000 That was a stretch number for them. But so I could... I mean, so here I am, I mean, what, you know, I'll use Yiddish, what a ballsy thing to do, you know, I'm kidding, but, you know, to ask somebody to do 40% more when the company itself was saying, this is all we're asking, you know, but we were number one forever, you know, and everybody walked around like, you know, I'm part of this team. I'm part of something that's really great. And I think it enriched their lives. It made them feel that their work was worthwhile. They worked well together and collaborated, cooperated. They, you know, they shared ideas. It wasn't like, I'm trying to beat you. It was everything that you could kind of really kind of want in, in teamwork. And so, but it's the demanding aspect that's the male but you can't be demanding 100% of the time unless you're doing the rest of it. And that's where we get into trouble is we think we can just, I need you to do this, where are you on this? And I need this next project. And all of a sudden, Claude goes, he doesn't care about me at all. He just cares about my work, you know, getting my goals met. And once people come to that conclusion, it's sort of game over. People just go, forget this guy. I'm just not going to support it. Yep. I love the story and you're absolutely right because the name of the game in so many ways is how do we retain high performing talent right now? Uh, whether or not you were in COVID or not within COVID, it's still, um, it's incredibly important for us to dive deep in, in, in our, I think, I believe, look at ourselves and, and be, exemplify the golden rule every single day every single hour, every single minute of the day. And I think, you know, that is basically the way I lead. Uh, it sounds like in many ways, the way you lead. 
the, the question I have, there's so many things I want to, I want to go into in, in what you just said, but really it, it dawns on me, you know, when did you, when have you been able to look in the mirror, go out into the beach, look at the water, whatever it is that you do and say, yeah, my dad was wrong. Um, I, I am that's, that's a very powerful question. Um, I, you know, I, I obviously I follow you on Twitter and I know what you're about and you'll understand this. I, I've met some people in my life that like they're either not from this planet or they see the world very differently. And somebody said to me, um, you need to forgive your father. Have you forgiven your father? And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I forgive him. And um, and he's she said it was, it's, a, it's a woman. And she said, no, I mean, have you had a ceremony? And I said, no. And so she need, said, you need to do that. You need to have like a ceremony. You need to say, you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this, and I forgive you. So I did that. And I was actually, I thought, you know, thank you for that. That was really helpful. So I told her I did it. And she said, okay, now you have to write the preface of your book. And I said, what's the preface of my book? And she says, you have to tell your story. And, and I said, I'm like, I'm pausing because I'm like, what's my audience here? But no effing, no effing way am I going to relive that. And she said, that's how you will heal it. And so I went to my library at UCSD with, you know, with this and a pen. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to sit down and I'm just going to start to write. And honestly, I thought it was going to kill me. I really did. It was, it was like I was suffocating. And I just thought, there's no way. I can't tell you the number of days where I said, there's no way I can do this. Like I, and she said, you have to write it now. And so I don't really know what her spiritual talents are, except to say that what she was able to do was to guide me and say, I, I, Claude, I never intended to tell my story in the book. I never intended to write it. But what she was really saying was, you can't do this work unless you fully heal it, you know? And so by writing it and reliving it and seeing it in sequence and going through that grief and then realizing like I've actually made it to the other side, so I have another friend. So after I've done all that, now the books come out and I start writing for Fast Company and I'm getting these articles in Fast Company and they're doing really well. She goes, I just need to like level check here. Are you a writer? And, uh, and I couldn't go there. Like I just said, um, not certain of that yet. And she's like, really? Like, you know, like it was so she goes, if you could turn it around, like if I were to ask you based on what you've accomplished, or, you know, like ask me if I'm a writer, what do you think my answer? I go, well, of course you are. So I guess really what I'm pointing out is that it's, it's a sequence of healing. It's a sequence of transitioning, you know, but. In, um, are we still connected? There we are at Wingfoot at Wingfoot in Westchester this weekend, you know, and I grew up along, my dad's best friend was a member at Wingfoot and he used to play with him out there. And I remember him telling me it's his all time favorite golf course. So as I'm watching this tournament this weekend, I was thinking of my father and all I could do is think of him fondly. So the healing, the going through all that, 
you know, I don't, I, I, it's not holding me back any longer. But there, you know, there is cellular memory of this that you have to work out. You know, it does absorb into your body. You can't be abused like that and not have it harm you. So you have to do the work in order to get to the other side of it. But I'll tell you something really fascinating. One piece of the work was seeing the people that work for me thrive. So I could see that, and without knowing what was going on, you know, in my 20s and 30s, as I'm managing people and I'm seeing them succeed and I'm seeing them be grateful and I'm seeing them go on to bigger and better things. I'm like, hey, this is working. Like, I'm a good manager. And because I'm seeing these people thrive, it healed me. It healed the, the dimension of me because the idea was, that would have made me infinitely more successful. And now I'm seeing it in other people. So I'm like, I don't know how to explain it better than just to say that there was an aspect of that that made me feel really, really good. So the more I gave, the more I got in return, which is kind of my mantra anyway, we reap what we sow. I love it. I mean, I'm going to use an overused word, but I'm going to use it because it's the right word. It's empathy. Mm-hmm that entire situation, your, your resilience, the fact that I'm sure you had some PTSD and had to forgive. And that's a fluid evolving. That's a whole nother thing, right? It's not a, yeah. I forgive you, like you said, like, it's not, yeah, sure. I forgive you. No, it's a whole, it, it, it takes a small lifetime. Yeah. It, that's a great way to describe what you just said. But the empathy I, I believe that you have, be, again, because you went through that and then because you came out on the other side and decided to do exactly the opposite of what was done to you, unbeknownst to you, unbeknownst right. to you. Right. You just went and you did because that's what Mark's, that's what Mark's heart and your, your North Star was. Like, I'm just, I'm going to treat people well. I'm going to treat people well tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and, and here you are. So I think, you know, right now, I, I, I really hear, obviously, the resilience, the empathy, the compassion, the forgiveness, also the forgiveness of yourself. Because, you know, I'll, I'll share just a tiny bit of, of a story here um, that I, I have shared in places. Um, I was in two um, relationships. Just here. Pardon? It's just us here. It's just us. It's just us chickens, as they say. Exactly. But I was in... Um, uh, two emotionally and, and physically abusive relationships. Um, the first one was at 22 until I was 24. Um, so that was, you know, two, three very long years, really. And then um, 30 to 35. And the, uh, the shame that I carried because, well, Claude should know better. Claude was raised well. Like, um, the shame that I carried for a very long time only, only uh, continued the abuse. After those relationships were long gone, ap- after I got out, ap- after I even you know, went to therapy and, and started my own healing, until I could really understand the prison I was keeping myself in because I couldn't forgive myself. Mm-hmm. The minute I started to talk to other people like me who had been in situations like me, um, and I realized that I wasn't the only one, uh, that that made my empathy gene uh, umpteens, um, umpteen times, you know, it's, it was ginormous. I've always been an empathetic person, but to really understand that I'm not the only one, 
I'm not the only one that suffered. Uh, I'm not the only one that's dealing with PTSD or um, what it's like to, you know, have those, those cellular memories, even though I don't have any more memories, memories. Um, it really, um, God, you know, you talk about emotional currency. It gave me, gave me everything to be able to recognize that I'm just like Mark and Mark's just like me and you're just like Jane and I'm just like Jack and we're all so similar. It's called the human condition. And, you know, you, you've spoken very eloquently here and, and in your book and elsewhere, what our people need. They need to feel psychologically safe. They need to feel like they belong. You need to connect with them. You know, I mean, in, in your article in Forbes in 2016, you actually laid down the four objectives for leaders. I'd love to actually, if you wouldn't mind just running through those, that would be fantastic. And I don't mean like sprinting through those. I mean- Good, no, good. You'll have to remind me what they are in that article. <laughs> I mean, yeah. everything you've talked about, invest deeply, connect personally, hire for heart and love well. It's everything you've already talked about. But, um, you know, you, you obviously spent some time, you know, crafting those, but my God, it looks as though you could have just like taken them out of the air because they're right. They're just right. Yeah. The funny thing is that, you know, um, there was, there's been a lot of resistance to this, you know, th this hasn't been like an easy sell, you know, and, uh, I seriously, um, it's just the whole idea that you lead with heart was like, I, I mean, it's interesting when, when the book came out, so I, I left my company and I did like, you know, leader of the year and, you know, I was very successful and people knew who I was and then I left and, you know, you go away, but people still remembered me. Right. So I come back with the book and I swear to God, you know, I'm really intuitive and, and, you know, that cultivated from my whole life experience, but that's the heart. And I could feel what people were saying was like, what happened to him? Like, what, what, like, what did he do over these last two years? Did he have like a meltdown or a breakdown? Like they, because they never went to say like, why was he so successful? They just figured I'm beating people up the way they were beating people up and demanding and, you know, micromanaging and conference calls and presenteeism and all that crap, you know? And, and so when this came out, it was like, well, only the people that work for me, the people that work for me were like, yes, that's, that's like, like he's explained what he's been doing. But the people that I used to work with thought I was insane. Like, many of them never got over it. They just immediately just assumed something must be really wrong there. So anyway, I just, you know, but uh, yeah, let's go through them. Yeah. Um, well, invest deeply. I mean, invest deeply, connect personally, hire for heart and love well. We, we don't even need to go through them. I just actually, because we've talked so much about them, I just think the, they're just right. Investing deeply in your people. Why would you do that? Why would anyone do that? Um, well, it, it's, if you, if you apply like a coaching model, for example. So, you know, I've, I've, I've followed college basketball is something that I really, really love. Right. 
And so they have this big tournament, March Madness, every year. And it's the same teams that seem to make it. Now, there's, you know, there's some of the 64 teams, certainly some of them haven't been there in 20 years. And you have those guys that come in and out. But there's a core group of coaches who manage to bring their teams, you know, virtually every year. And not just make it but win it or in the sweet 16 or the final eight. Right. And so you look at that and you say, well, how's that possible? Like, because those kids, they're they're at best, they're only on campus for four years. Right. So you get them as a freshman and then they go away and then it keeps going. So every year you're coaching new people, but in the top programs, these players are only there for a year or two, and then they go off to the NBA and they're gone. So what that means is, they have to quickly build a team. They have to select the right people, and then they have to get them to win. And so I looked deeply at those people. Mike Krzyzewski, for example, at Duke, the all-time winningest coach. He actually wrote a book called Leading from the Heart, you know, Coaches' Insights into Coaching or something like that. You know, so, so he completely understood it. Jay Wright at Villanova, he's won two national championships in the last three or four years, five years. And they said that if they did an academic um, graduate, if they did an academic tournament, Villanova would win that because they had the highest graduation rate of any program in college basketball. So you look at that and you say, wait a minute, why? What's the difference? The difference isn't that the X's and the O's, the, X, the difference isn't that they train, that they pick the, the best shooters, the great dribblers or what have you. It's they care about what's going on in that person's life and they help them get through college and they help them get through their relationship problems. Oh, you had a bad date. It's going to be okay. Oh, you broke up. It's okay. I've been there. Whatever. They're there for them. How's your home? What's going on with your family? Right? And then you, if, if I were to say to you, tell me about your daughter. I want to know a little bit more about your daughter. Where does that affect you? It doesn't affect you here. It's like somebody cares about me to ask about the most precious thing in my life, right? So if you can make that kind of an investment, what I have found is that people reciprocate. They're so grateful that they want to give back and they want to give back, not in a manipulated way, but in such a authentic way that I am so grateful to you, Claude, that I want to work hard for you and stay late for you and do whatever it takes to get what we need to get done here for you. And, but they don't feel it like, okay, and now I've handed over the goals to Claude and now she's the big recipient here. They feel all part of it. We're all connected as you were saying earlier. So that's the reason you do it, you know, besides it's a much more enjoyable thing. It's just much more satisfying to be able to help people in all the dimensions of their life, you know? Absolutely. You know, and, and that's the, can you still hear me? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, invest deeply, connect personally right there. We're talking the same language. Hire for heart. Tell me about that. How, how, do, you, how do you hire for heart? How does one hire for heart? I think, you know, the big, the big issue is that, you know, Pantajali, who created yoga, allegedly, but, you know, Indian philosopher of fifth or sixth century, said that everyone's purpose is put into their heart. And Buddha said, you know, you're, you're here to find your purpose, right? So you, your purpose is in your heart. You just have to go find it. So we go out and we explore. And, but a lot of times people will come to you and they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, I'd love to work in a bank. 
And really what they're saying is, I'd love to work anywhere because, you know, I need a job, right? So, so you have to start there. You have to start with, is it a match? You know, like, do you really, what is it about this work that is going to appeal to you? So what I discovered is that a lot of people were just so interested in getting their positions filled that if the person said, yeah, I'd love to be a banker, then you go, well, fine, you're, you're a banker. You know, instead of saying, tell me why banking is even an interest to you. So if it's not in your heart to do it, you're never going to be very good at it. And you're always going to be thinking about your hobbies or getting out of here and doing something differently. So what I found was two things very cool. One is that if people have it in their heart to do that kind of work, they're going to do it because they love it. And the other is, is that the people who are already doing it well can detect it in the people that are applying. So uh, I would take my star employees and I trained them at an interview and brought them into the interviews. And then I would defer to them to make the decisions. So it had to be, they believed that this person was the right person to come onto the team. So I'm deferring a big portion of responsibility to them. But what I found was my inclination was closer to filling the position because I thought, well, this person's probably going to be a fit. But there was some sense of detection that they had in themselves of what it was that meant that this is what I really ought to be doing with my life, that they could say was binary. Is it in them or is it not? And so I can't tell you the number of times, the number of times where I thought, okay, it's like, we'll just say contestant A, contestant B, contestant C, you know, applicant A, B, C, you know? And so, you know, I'm like, it's going to be B, you know? And they're like, the only person we don't like is B. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, how can you say that? And they're like, B is not the person. And I was just like, I'd go quiet because I realized their instincts are better than mine here. And I have great instincts because I'm, you know, I, I say my cultivated this intuition largely just to maneuver around my father and what, you know, what was going to, you know, keep me from in harm's way, but allowed me to be able to feel into people, which by the way, I think is another critical skill. Uh, you mentioned the golden rule earlier. Somebody mentioned this to me, or I read it in a book from one of my podcast guests recently, and it's the platinum rule, which actually kind of stunned me because we say do unto others as we wish, you know, done to ours to unto us. Um, but it's do unto others what they want you to do to them. I, I've mangled the quote, right? <laughs> but, but the idea is to identify what's important to them and then give it to them. And yeah. that's stunning, right? That's so, so it's like, sorry to interrupt. That's like the so the the beautiful non-codependent version. Yes, exactly. It's not about me. It's not about what I think would be great. Right now, I think, oh, what you know would make them happy is this. And then you go give it to them and they're like, eh. you know, meh. And so you go, well, wait a minute, you know, why didn't that work? But if you go to them and say, if you were to do X, if you were to achieve X, what would make you happy? You're going to get options that you never would have considered, but will make them really happy. And sometimes it you know, blows your mind. You're like, that's what could make you happy? But all right, you know, whatever. So I think that's a really powerful way of approaching it, which is to say individually. What matters to what in terms of how I manage you is totally different potentially than how I'm going to manage other people. And that's just fine, right? 
if I know you're a morning person, you know, then you might be the first person I talk to. I get you fresh at the day. If I know you're like, oh God, please don't talk to me until eight o'clock, have my coffee and check my emails or 8.30 or whatever. If I can respect that and schedule an afternoon meeting and then tell you that I'm intentionally respecting that, like, I know you don't like morning meetings. I know you don't do that. So I'm never going to do that to you unless, you know, the place is burning down. To have somebody that would be that thoughtful, no, it's just that I found it just matters to people. It matters to all of us. It's just, it's caring deeply. Exactly. It is really giving a you-know-what about the people that work for you, with you, and who you work for. I mean, I, I always say, you know, I work for 850 people. I really do. My job is to work for them. Yeah, sure, I have a team. Course. Yeah, no, I, I, I get it. You know, no, I, I totally get it. It, you know, it sounds like a platitude when you say that I'm here to serve, but it's in your heart. So it don't, you don't have to say it. It's just how you operate, right? That's, that's the difference. It's not a platitude to you. It's how you operate. It's like, I'm thinking about these 850 people all day, all night long. That translates. People, people feel that. They feel that totally. Well, I mean, we could go, we could, <laughs> I actually feel like I just met a brother from another mother and I, <laughs> it means a lot to me. I, I think, you know, all the questions that I had for you, I, I, as soon as you were telling your origin story, I was like, this is not the conversation. This isn't the conversation I want to have. I want to have like this, the real conversation. And, you know, you brought up intuition, um, which uh, I know you're highly intuitive. I am as well. I am. Um, it is, it's definitely my superpower, one of my superpowers. Um, what is yours? What would There's you say? no question. It's, it's, it's intuition. You know, um, I, I, you know, and it's come cultivating it now where I can feel like, you know, we, we were talking earlier about one of my famous guests on my podcast and yeah. how it was going sideways and right, you know, and so you have to kind of momentarily take a few breaths and say, you know, and so I was like, what's going on there? And I could feel what was going on there between that person's assistant and that person. And like, I don't know how to explain that, but you know, there's science that shows that your heart is really a receiver. And so I was connecting into what was going on there. And I realized that it wasn't about me. And that's where I, you know, I was taught everything was about me, right? Not in a good way, right? You know, you are the reason why, you know, the world's coming to an end was kind of way I was taught. And so when things aren't going well, that's where I go instinctively. But through an intuitive sense, you know, I could feel like these guys, they just got to work something out between them. That's what this is all about, yeah. you know? And so when we did the podcast, it was, it was spectacular, and it was because I didn't, because with all the interruptions and all the things that they did, I needed to change my technology. I have a different producer for this. It cost me more money. It was an interruption and they delayed it. It was a lot of, you know, a lot of, and I could have gone, you know, this isn't worth it or these people were jerks or whatever. But through this sense of, oh, I know what's going on here. They have some issues. They're working through something. So 
I don't know where that comes from, but I'm grateful for it. So I can't drive down, you know, I live in the same town for 40 years and I can go down the same streets. My wife said, you could never sell real estate because you're driving to houses and you don't know where they are. And people go, oh, how long you lived here? Oh, 40 years. <laughs> and you don't know where the streets are? You know, like, so I know I got my limitations, but that's a strength. So yeah, we're, we're all right. Navigation might not be your superpower uh, of, road, but of, of humans it is. And of the heart is. And I think that's, you know, that's, again, I go back to resilience in this conversation. And I think about, you know, you had to become, your spirit, whatever, knew that you had to become intuitive because you needed to know what was coming around that next corner. Because you knew it was nothing, nothing was going to be good about that. So you had to do some pattern recognition, which I think is, is very, that's, that's intuition. Uh, as a dyslexic myself, at an early age, school um, was extremely difficult for me, and I had to learn other ways of learning and other ways of understanding um, what I was reading, but also just kind of finding my way in the world. And it became a, just my beacon. You know, it's it's a it's a rudder for me. We do we do things not only to survive, obviously to thrive, but I think at the end of the day, we know that we all want to belong. We want to feel connection, connection, and we want to feel like we matter in this world. And if I have to sum up a lot of what we've talked about, I think one of, one of your superpowers is making people know that they matter and that, mm-hmm. that they're safe because you've already said, you know, you've said a very important sentence, which is, I got your back. That, that right there is a, is a heart leader. You're safe with me. Even if you fall, I'll be there to pick you up. That's it. Nothing you do is going to. Nothing you do is going to affect how I feel about you at work. You know. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for sharing with me. I think you know. I I think we could have this conversation for another three hours. Happily, I know. I know. Your dinner time. No, I really really enjoyed it, Claude. And you know, you've asked some wonderful questions, and I think you know, not going to the ones that you had on your 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 list is is just fine because we explored a lot of great you know great topics that I think are at the core of what you do and what's important to you and the theme of what you're trying to do. And so, I'm just uh, very grateful to be able to contribute to it. And I'm especially honored, honestly, to be your first guest. So that uh, that. Duly noted, let me just say. It, it, uh, it couldn't have been anyone else. So thank you for saying yes. 